23-year-old Welsh adventurer Ash Dykes is walking through the desert. The Gobi in Mongolia. It's one of the world's largest and most desolate. They can get pretty hot. The mercury regularly tops out at 40 plus degrees Celsius. The only shelter that I could find was underneath my trailer because there was no breeze, there was no natural shade or shelter. And Ash is running very low on water. I was delirious. I started to hallucinate. I could almost feel my organs drying up. He's only got a few sips left and it's days till the next water source. I was rationing the last remaining dribbles of water that I had left. And at this point, I genuinely didn't believe that I could survive six days longer. He couldn't phone his support team to evacuate him because he couldn't get any signal on his satellite phone. So there he was, a boy from a village in Wales, out all alone in the desert, close to dying. Nothing worse in the moment realising it's 7am, you're already sweating and you've got to get through the whole day on minimal water and you're already, your, your body's already not functioning properly. When you're severely dehydrated, your organs eventually just shut down one by one. Ash didn't know if he was going to make it to the next water source. So what was he going to do? I'm Rob Pope, and for Red Bull, this is How To Be Superhuman. In this episode, I'm talking to Ash Dykes. When he decided to try to become a professional explorer in his early 20s, the odds weren't looking good. You've got to have quite a lot of money to start out to fund your first adventures. For a 20-something-old boy from a small village in Wales, Work in a fish and chip shop, this is going to be quite the tall order. Ash had many doubters, or few doubts himself. Cocky? Maybe. But someone's got to believe in you, right? By the time Ash hit 30, he'd become a superstar amongst adventurers. He was the first person to walk across Mongolia and Madagascar unsupported. And then, in 2018, he decided to take on his biggest challenge yet, walking the entire length of the Yangtze River in China, from source to mouth, all 4,000 miles of it. Maybe the thing that got him through these three amazing journeys is the very same thing that made a young Ash think he could even get into this business in the first place. Sheer determination devil-may-care attitude. It's actually great to be chatting with somebody who's almost just down the road from me. Uh, we get the same weather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, eating my cheese on toast and uh, grinding away in this typical Welsh weather, hey? <laughs> so... How did a lad from Old Colwyn in Wales become one of the world's best adventurers? 
Oh, well, I appreciate such a, uh, a compliment. Don't know if I can agree to that, but... Pretty- it kind of all started when Ash was doing a BTEC in outdoor education. As part of the course, you had to do a winter expedition in the Scottish mountains. The college gave all the kids some money towards warm outdoor kit. But Ash was 17. You know how it goes. He had other priorities. At that time, I was just... I think I was just modifying my Renault Clio, <laughs> you know, I was spray painting it, you know, nothing to do with the outdoors as, at all. I was at the age 17, purchasing alloys, quite ridiculous, I had my own little car project. The other more sensible students purchased warm gloves, you know, waterproof trousers, useful stuff, but I spent that money dressing his car up with fancy rims and other bits of bling that I'm sure you'd come to regret 10 years down the line. So when the trip came around, Ash himself was not in good nick. In Scotland, I think I was there with like an Adidas tracksuit, you know, kind of like a shell suit, (laughs) non-waterproof trainers. Um, My rucksack wasn't even waterproof, yet I was always ahead of the group, always grinding, always making the first footprints within the snow, making it easy for the ones behind me. And that's when I realised, you know, I took to the outdoors, took to the hardcore elements and regardless of them being dry at the end of the day and me being soaked, I still had the biggest smile on my face, you know? Ash discovered something about himself on that trip. He thrived in extreme conditions. This experience made him think, what if I did this again but went further afield? And that idea of of travelling... Bear in mind, I don't come from a financial background uh, by any means. So I just thought, how can I possibly make that happen? Never been abroad on my own. And, uh, you know, it, it started to seem quite daunting, you know, just just the simple things, boarding a plane on my own. Um, I was currently working in a fish and chip shop. How could I possibly earn enough money from a fish and chip shop to head out into the big wide world of travelling? He got a job as a lifeguard, sold his car, bought a bike and started saving. Fast forward a year and a half, when I turned 19, um, I was set. I was, I was ready to, to commence my, my travels. I'd saved up the pennies. Wasn't much of a budget at all, but enough to get me by, you know. Small rucksack, passport, and off he went. To Southeast Asia with a friend, like so many British 19-year-olds. But Ash's trip turned out to be a little different to most of your gap year stories. The adventure that you're getting to was probably the biggest catalyst. I think if it wasn't for this next adventure I'm going to tell you about, I wouldn't be where I am right now. I wouldn't have done what I've done. Ash landed in China and he did all the big touristy stuff, starting with the Great Wall. He got the selfie, bought the T-shirt and two weeks in, he decided he was bored. And I was there saying, you know, we need to take on an adventure. But I know we're on a shoestring budget, but maybe we can, I don't know, purchase the most ridiculous bikes we can find and and let's go. Let's maybe cycle Cambodia, the entire length of Vietnam. They bought two bikes that cost £10 each. No pump, no puncture repair kit, no phones, just a tent and some peanut butter. Unsurprisingly, their bikes broke more times than they could recall. But two and a half weeks and over a hundred miles later, Ash and his friend made it through Cambodia, Vietnam, all the way to the border with Myanmar. Uh, And we came across this this local guy um, 
you know, sort of, he looked like the Thai Rambo, sort of bandana wrapped around his forehead, machete in his hand. Uh, we got communicating, he could speak a bit of English. You know, he was pretty much talking about um, how dense the jungle is, which is just behind him. Uh, and he offered to take us. I feel like at that point, most 19-year-olds would have thought to themselves, yeah, this would make a pretty good story to tell the lads back home. But actually, no thanks. <laughs> but me and my friend were kind of like, risk nothing, gain nothing. This sounds like a heck of adventure. Let's, uh, let's do it. They got rid of the bikes and off they went into the jungle. And that's where their adventure really started. You've got the smoke, you've got the mosquitoes, you've got the wildlife, you've got the insects, you've got the feeling dirty, feeling hungry. And I remember two o'clock in the morning one time sleeping under a sort of uh, bamboo shelter with sort of banana leaves as, a, as roofing and banana leaves as our bedding. And I woke up and I, and I saw, because the fire's still going, I saw red ants, they must have almost been an inch in length and they were marching down one of the ridges of my bedding, which was the banana leaf. <laughs> and at first, you know, I freaked out. I was like, whoa, God, I didn't like that at all. It was out of my comfort zone. But I remember by night three, I think it was, that happened again. And I remember just waking up and seeing the ridge line being trampled by these ants yet again. And, and I didn't care. Come night three, I went back to sleep. Thought, they're not bothering me. They're just using my banana leaf as a shortcut. They're not interested in me. Ash realised exploring was more than just about sheer physical strength and daring do. It was also about the mental game. Maybe this was even the crux of it. And that was it, you know, it was it was great first time adventure. Loved it. And that's at that point where I found my niche, found my passion. And man, I just wanted to continue. And that's when Ash Dykes, the adventurer, was born. As soon as he came back to Wales, he started planning his next trip, solo this time, to Mongolia. What I liked about Mongolia is if I chose to do a walking expedition, I could go where no bikes or no vehicles could go. And I'd be so, kind of reliant solely on myself to survive. And I could go deeper south into the Gobi. I could go deeper into the Altai Mountains. The plan was to walk the entire length of Mongolia from west to east. 1,500 miles across some of the least populated landscapes on Earth. From the green mountains, to the vast steppes, to the arid Gobi Desert. Ash was 22 at the time. Young for an explorer, perhaps. Naive, for sure. As he was planning this, he realised it might be a good idea to talk to someone who's done it before. But he couldn't find anyone. He did find someone who tried but had never finished. And in fact, he'd been evacuated three times. I looked into this guy. He was a Navy soldier, a desert explorer. I wrote to him and said, what sort of dangers should I look out for? He got back saying there's the grey wolves, the drunken nomadic drifters, the snowstorms, the sandstorms, um, the steep ravines, the dry wells, and the list went on and on and on. I was like, what am I doing? I'm a 22-year-old beach bum, <laughs> you know, with no background, no experience in the desert, no military experience. And it, it put me off, you know, I had a lot of fear, I had a lot of doubt. But Ash being Ash, he didn't dwell on that doubt for too long. 
and he started training. I had no more than £200 to my name. I moved back into my parents in Wales. I couldn't afford no gym membership. Um, had my uncle drop me off a tractor tyre. I was training for my back garden in the winter. He devised his own training regime. He used battle ropes to train his core and upper body. He used the benches on the sepia to do flying press-ups and went up and down stairs like Killian Journey up a mountain. All of old Colwyn became his gym. Ash also built a kind of steel cart on two wheels to carry all his food and equipment. He'd have to drag it along behind him, like a donkey. Just the bare bones of it already weighed 40 kilos, without any stuff in it. With his supplies, it would probably weigh more like 120 kilograms. This was going to be much harder than Ash had anticipated. But he finally secured funding for the trip through sponsorships, only two weeks before his scheduled departure. And in 2013, he landed in Mongolia. After having walked through the lush Altai Mountains, Ash made it to the brutal Gobi Desert. It's one of the world's largest and driest. It was 40 plus degrees Celsius. The terrain was a mix of gravel and soft sand, which meant the wheels, with them being so thin, would sink into the soft sand. Um, I'd have to lean 90 degrees forward, you know, use my poles as well, and just use all of my energy at this point. He was running very low on water. And the next well he came across turned out to be dry. By this point, Ash was severely dehydrated. I was delirious. I started to hallucinate. And the sun was beating down hard. The only shelter that I could find was underneath my trailer because there was no breeze, there was no natural shade or shelter. Uh, and I found myself lying under my trailer for an hour at a time. He had to get out of there. Ash thought of asking his support team in Ulaanbaatar, the capital, for an evac. But he had to find a place where his phone would catch signal. And that could take days. And at this point, I genuinely didn't believe that I could survive six days longer. I was rationing the last remaining dribbles of water that I had left. And I knew that at this point, I was only four days. I say only, it's still a heck of a distance, but I was four days away from the next community, which was a confirmed water source. Four more days. Ash was already in agony. I could almost feel my organs drying up. Like one full day for me at that point was daunting. It was hideous. Um, nothing worse in the moment realising it's 7am, you're already sweating and you've got to get through the whole day on minimal water and you're already your, your body's already not functioning properly. Here's this 23-year-old guy from a tiny village in Wales. It's his first solo expedition, and now he's in the middle of the Gobi Desert. And he's dying. How on earth is he going to survive? 
Ash realised he couldn't think in terms of the next four days. He needed to focus on the baby steps. What I did is I focused in on 100 metres. You know, I could I could see 100 metres, so there was no reason why if I if I get out from underneath my trailer, walk for 100 metres, 200 metres if I'm lucky, and then rest under my trailer for no more than five minutes. If he did that enough times, he could maybe, just maybe, get to the water source. And four days later, what must have seemed like an eternity to Ash, he finally got there. He survived. I collapsed once I got there. I was in, I was in an unimaginable state. The locals were extremely uh, friendly. They took me in, took me eight days to recover and to get over the fear of, you know, should I continue or not? He'd come close to dying. But using the same mental focus that allowed him to get from 100 metres to 200 metres, Ash got up and continued. After 1,500 miles and 78 days of trekking, he crossed the finish line in Mongolia. And he became the first person in recent recorded history to walk across Mongolia alone. But Ash wasn't done yet. He was already thinking bigger. Thinking of the next adventure. What makes you keep on going back? Like sort of, you know, have you not had your fill? <laughs> One thing that is maybe slightly different about me is with all of these negatives that I faced, like almost dying in the Gobi, I kind of tend to forget about the negatives and focus in on the positives. So each time I come back off an expedition, I'm not emotionally scarred or damaged, you know, from such a, a harsh experience to live through. It kind of goes over my head. Cool. I've learned from it. On to the next. Sounds like the opposite of PTSD. Could come across as foolish, but it's probably actually quite a useful brain mechanism. I've heard that's what people experience right after they've given birth, where one of the chemicals that gets released just wipes the pain and terror from the memory. And you, your body forgets the absolute horror, which is pretty fortunate, actually. So otherwise, you'd never be able to have another kid again. Ash's next trip was walking the length of Madagascar. But even that didn't feel big enough to him. Ash began thinking about his first ever adventure trip when he was just 19. He started in China, but only spent two weeks there doing all the big touristy things, and he'd been dreaming of going back ever since. But now he had an idea. What if he were to walk the length of the Yangtze River? The longest river running through a single country, 4,000 miles, going through mountains, plains and huge cities. I was just looking down thinking 4,000 miles all the way from the west, sort of zigzags, it goes all the way down south of China, cuts northeast, goes across the east. And I was just like, that is, is going to be incredible crazy, insane adventures along that route. It's a beast of a river. Third longest in the world and the busiest. It starts at this tiny little stream high up in the Tibetan mountains. Then it goes down into the flatlands and the forests, passing the many towns and villages that have been built up on its banks, 
and it grows as it travels east to the major port city of Shanghai, where ships clog its arteries before finally spilling out into the East China Sea. No one had ever walked the length of it from source to mouth before. This was going to be Asher's most challenging expedition yet. In 2018, Ash began this mammoth journey. I started the expedition at potentially the worst time to start it. The beginning of winter. And the scenes is, you know, we're high in the Tibetan plateau, part of the Himalayas there. Uh, we're at over 5,100 metres, which is equivalent to Mount Everest Base Camp. It is wild, really remote. You do feel very vulnerable to the elements because you're at altitude. It is cold. Um, and within the next few weeks, it's going to plummet from minus 5 to minus 20 degrees Celsius. In the Tibetan mountains, as well as the usual frostbite and hypothermia, the cold brings its own set of specific dangers. Wolves and bears. As the temperatures plummet, they come lower down the mountains, where it's a bit warmer and where humans hang out. And in winter, the wolves and bears are especially hungry. Ash's team made a start, but soon his mountain guides got well. Cold feet. And I remember having my team in, in Beijing saying, you're only one week in. I reckon you, you know, scrap the expedition, spend another year here in China, which at this point, it would be nine and a half to 10 months in China until the next time to, to go again. Because at this point, it's just too dangerous. Uh, you're putting yourself and the people you're with at risk. What I did is I gave my guides full choice. You know, it's, it's completely their decision. They can either join me um, or they can leave now. But either way, I'm, I'm going to continue. I, I believe in my preparation. I believe I will get off the mountains before the winter season um, sets in. You know, if, if I hadn't had Mongolia and Madagascar um, under my belt, I probably would have bailed it there and then and, and started again next year. Asha's entire two years of preparation could have been thrown away at that moment had he chosen to stop, to go back. But he didn't. And so he set off through the snowy peaks with the remaining team. His daily routine became waking up early, 5 or 6am, 14 hours of hiking with two meals a day and snacks thrown in. He covered around 18 kilometres a day, if he was lucky. He soon started to come across fresh bear prints in the snow. And when he met someone on the way or came to a village, people would warn him about the bears. And I came across a guy that he said, this bear walked straight past his Tibetan Mastiff, which is pretty much a dog-like bear anyway, chained up, metal stake in the ground. Uh, that's what the locals have to protect them from bears, leopards and wolves. Um, and the bear walked straight past the dog, straight into the courtyard, uh, and was scratching at his steel door whilst he hid inside his his cupboard. And I was like, whoa. And he's there giving me and presenting me with a knife. <laughs> Good luck for when you're in your tent at night. 
Ash began to give his number on WeChat to people he came across. And he got more than he bargained for. And the people at the last community who have my WeChat are now sending me photos. And this could be of bear attacks of man slaughtered by a fair, just an image of his face scratched up, which was hideous. Um, another video which stands out a lot is a guy in a community that escapes a bear as the bear runs up, climbs up a truck. And this guy does some parkour stuff. He, he jumps up the, the truck as this bear's running at him. Um, over the truck, takes a leap down, and this bear is just on his tail after him the whole way up and across the truck until he jumps down. And they said that this is only uh, two kilometres away from where you currently are. Like, thank God you had, like, the, the input from the locals, but you were in really remote areas. Like, sort of, could, could they speak English? How did you get by? It was difficult. Uh, I spoke a little bit of Mandarin, but, of course, at the start of the Yangtze River, it was a Tibetan region uh, where a lot just spoke Tibetan. I got a funny story actually about the language barrier is I had a videographer from Texas join me and he's fluent in Mandarin, amazing at Mandarin. That wasn't going to come in handy in the Tibetan plateaus though. It's an entirely different dialect. One time, Ash and his videographer noticed some people who were frantically making gestures at them. Wolf impressions, um, you know, aggressive sounds, he did all of that with that, just hand gestures effectively. Uh, but Kyle filmed all of this. Uh, we didn't know what they were saying, so we kind of waved, said bye. We carried on walking down that valley. For the next two days, we were stalked by a pack of wolves. They were always in mm. quite close proximity to us. And it was awe-inspiring. It was beautiful, but also quite creepy at the same time. Five months later, the videographer sent that footage to an editor in Beijing. And she, she called me up and she said what they were saying is right down that valley where you're heading, only yesterday a pack of wolves had killed a local lady. Do not go down there. But we were none the wiser. We were like, thank you, yeah, bye-bye. Yeah, yeah, we it's fine. Some of the people he met, they weren't always so helpful. It was so rare that a Westerner was here. And if there's a Westerner there, there has to be good reason and documents and permits, otherwise you're being deported. But if we came across the nomads, um, which are in their sort of nomadic gurs or yurts, like their white felt tents, they would radio to the next gur, to the next gur, until there was a community which would phone the police, tell us our exact location. So two, three o'clock in the morning, we would have the police rock up, their lights go, and I just remember my heart sinking, because you know you're gonna be faced major questioning. Ash had all the right papers with him, but what if the local authorities didn't think so? The Tibetan mountains are a politically sensitive area for the Chinese government, and for a Westerner, you've got to have a pretty good reason to be there. Ash and the team got no sleep that night. They were sat in a tiny police station, faced with the prospect of either being deported or having to walk those 40 kilometres back on themselves, and this would involve swimming across a glacially cold river. It was two weeks into the trip, and Ash could already feel himself beginning to lose his resolve. At this point, you know, when we were dropped off 40 miles back on ourselves by the police, we had had no sleep. We were then facing the threat of being deported. And at that point, it was, you know, I remember thinking, what am I doing? I was at breaking point at that point. Felt my emotions welling up. I was feeling overwhelmed. I remember on that satellite phone just speaking to my dad, um, giving him an update of where I am. 
and the fact that I'm only, you know, I've still got 300 plus days to go and already I've faced all of this. And I just remember saying, what am I doing? What am I, what am I doing? Um, and it was at that point where I was just really holding it and I, I couldn't let my guide see how emotional I was. So I had to fight everything, I had to suppress everything. Um, I couldn't, I just, you know, cause I was, they were already feeling like that and they already had a, a cry themselves. So I had to be seen to be the leader here. Eventually, the police released them. And as usual, Ashtags overcame his mental breaking point. And once he did, the rest of the journey became somehow much easier. He got through winter in the remote mountains, and once he hit the halfway point, the peaks and the cold gave way to verdant jungle and then cities and heat. Especially the last 20% was really difficult because there was no wilderness. I was inhaling dust, my eyes were suffering, my blisters were coming back because I was now pounding the concrete. I remember looking at my phone one day, it said, feels like 52 degrees Celsius. Oh, it was grim, sweating everywhere, but then my sweat would almost immediately dry and I'd have like salt all over my body, you know, it was difficult. And then the sweat would turn my feet soft, making myself susceptible to blisters. So blisters would come flooding back in and, oh yeah, different challenges for sure. But I was on the last, a very long home stretch. Almost a year after he began the journey, at the source of the Yangtze in the remote Tibetan mountains, Ash finally had the finish line in his sights. Shanghai. I always used to say that the Yangtze River uh, was like a, a dragon and that it had just chewed up and spat out so many people and you just had to stick with it, ride the difficulties, and I did throughout the full 352 days, I felt that connection, my number one favorite river in the world, of course. And as I'm walking by it that final day, you know, now it's completely different to the source where it's just a tiny little trickle. No one's there, you know, no one, no one needs the Yangtze at that point. But now seeing it at the end and how many people rely on it and how many cruise liners, how many tourists are there. And I'm just like, wow, you know, it's developed into this big beast of a river. And this is my final day. You know, this is where we part. This is where it's, uh, it's history between me and the Yangtze, if you like. As sad as Ash may have been to leave his beloved river, he knew that his mum was waiting on the other side. Before I set off for the Yangtze, my mum was, was really worried um, about the dangers and the, the, the jeopardy that I'd be putting myself in, and the authorities, and they can make people disappear um, with no trace. You know, they brought her to tears pretty much on that last day I said goodbye. Um, and I was telling her, you know, I've had this before with Mongolia. I've had people say that it can't be done. I've had people point out the things that could go wrong. Same with Madagascar. I, I remember whispering whilst I'm, uh, whilst I'm hugging her before I set off for the journey, saying, I guarantee you one year from now, I will prove to you of the naysayers that it can be done. I'll be standing at that finish line, having popped that champagne bottle, saying, I told you so. And you know, fast forward a year, I was at that finish line 
hugging my mum, whispering her in her ear after popping that champagne bottle. I told you so. What an incredible guy. If you want to know more about Ash, just give him a follow on Instagram at ash underscore dykes. And that dude has really been pushing it during the lockdown. I can't wait to hear what he gets up to next. If you have anything to say about Ash's story, just tweet us using the hashtag RedBullHowToBeSuperhuman. Also, come on, please do send us your own superhuman tales. So we'd love to hear what you guys have been up to. Remember, follow the podcast, rate it and leave a review because it helps other people discover the show. We appreciate it when you share the love. Finally, if you want more from the series like articles and pictures, just head to redbull.com slash superhuman. Next time on How To Be Superhuman, it's the badass woman who beat the blokes to win America's toughest endurance race. He's like catching me and then I would just ride faster and faster and faster, just trying to drop him and I was like breathing so hard and riding so hard and then I just took off.